In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Paula Page, one of the newspaper industry's most highly regarded deadline editors. Here's a snippet from their conversation. Well, I think they're cops and politicians, you know, there should be a healthy tension between journalists who are the so-called watchdogs and, and there should be tension. There should be conflict. Um, and I call it healthy because on the one hand, those are the people you're going to. That's, the, that's Those are your sources and you're going to them for information. But you shouldn't get so cozy with them that if they're doing wrong, you're scared to write about it or you don't want to offend your friend. And they should also see journalists, the watchdog, that if there is some corruption going on in their organization, they know they can call you and you're going to tell the truth. We're t- we, at the end of the day, we're truth tellers. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, This podcast is for you. In this episode, I'm honored to have Paula Page as my guest. Paula is a former colleague and a newsroom legend. She is unquestionably one of the best copy editors I've ever worked with, and she's also a great human being. She's compassionate, thoughtful, and resilient. Paula is the only person I know who has had two parallel and fully realized careers, one in civilian journalism and the other in military public affairs. Paula was born in Jamaica and joined the U.S. Air Force right out of high school. She served on active duty for five years, followed by more than two decades of service in the New York Air National Guard and the Air Force Reserve. Paula's numerous assignments included deployment to Kuwait in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, several humanitarian aid missions, a stint with the Secretary of the Air Force's Public Affairs Staff at the Pentagon, and training missions in Asia and the Pacific. In 2010, she retired from the Air Force Reserve as a Chief Master Sergeant. In her parallel universe civilian life, Paula is an award-winning journalist with more than 20 years of experience in various roles, including copy chief, features editor, and deputy business editor. She's worked at high-quality regional newspapers such as the Star-Ledger in New Jersey, the Stamford Advocate in Connecticut, and Newsday in New York. Paula's professional accomplishments include sharing a 2005 Pulitzer Prize for Breaking News, which was awarded to the staff of the Star-Ledger, and winning a Thomas Jefferson Award for news writing. That's the Department of Defense's highest award for print and broadcast communicators. She's also led workshops on editing and writing for the National Association of Black Journalists and the American Copy Editors Society. Paula currently serves as Director of Communication for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Electronic Health Record Modernization. Before we dive into our conversation with Paula, I have to share this story with you. So I, I worked with Paula at the Stanford Advocate. She was the copy chief on the overnight desk. And after deadline, we'd all be sitting around in various stages of exhaustion. And she would every now and then. Well, actually, actually this happened twice, as I recall. She, she would say, Mike, may I speak with you in the conference room? And I would say, of course. And then she would tell me that she'd been called up on active duty or that she was going on a support mission and that she'd be away for two weeks. And I would say, okay, that's cool. Thank you for telling me. Uh, Please stay safe and we'll see you when you get back. And then as she's getting up to leave, it would suddenly occur to me to ask, uh, hey, uh, Paula, this doesn't mean World War III is starting, does it? And she would give me a very serious look and say, no, Mike, it doesn't mean World War III is starting. And if it did, I couldn't tell you. 
Well, there you go. <laughs> that was one aspect of what it was like working with Paula. And now I am absolutely delighted to have Paula as my guest on this episode of Paid by the Word. Paula, how has the world of editing changed and evolved since you began your career? Oh, the most obvious one for me is long-form journalism isn't sexy anymore. No one wants to read long stories anymore. There's a small group of people, and those are the ones who are probably still subscribing to print magazines. But for the most part, it's like as a as a culture, we don't have time to read anymore. Um, so now everyone just scrolls on digital devices with their thumbs. And if you read the headline and you read the lead and then you move on next, and I'm, I'm as guilty of it. There are times when I'm scrolling on social media and I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm like, how long is this story? And then I scroll really fast, like, oh, I'm not reading this. <laughs> and I move on. All of our attention spans are shorter. It encourages us to be better writers. Absolutely. Um, do you remember how much stock and emphasis was put on writing a good lead? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I'm so happy you. Yes, and that's lead spelled L-E-D. L-E-D. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was such a big thing. You, that people, you, you'd, you'd find an editor would kick a story back, you know, and you know we use the word judge and say you know brighten the lead, you know make the lead more compelling. Yeah, and that was reason the reason why a lot of the copy desk existed was to write a great headline to complement that lead. Paula, editors often argue about style. Uh, mm -hmm. How many styles are there, and do you have to be fluent in all of them? Which, which is your favorite style? Well, my favorite is the Associated Press style because that's kind of what I grew up on, and what the majority of um, newspaper people are are fluent in is um, Associated Press or AP style. But obviously, there are other styles out there. You know, Bloomberg, um, they have their own style. Um, Chicago um, has their, Chicago Tribune, I understand, has their own style. And in, in academia, there are different styles as well. There's the APA style, which is the American Psychological Association style. And um, MLA, that's another style. So a lot of times, especially when we're students, we are trained, you must write in this particular style. And for me, when I was I was going to school and um, doing journalism at the same style, so same time, so I had to go back and forth between styles. And um, the APA style dictates that you always put the serial comma in like, you know, apples, oranges and plums. So that last, there's a comma before that and, but in the Associated Press, you don't put that comma in. So I had to keep remembering not to um, go back and forth on style. And, you know, if you work, for example, at the New York Times, they use honorifics or titles before people's last names. So it's, um, my name is Paula Page. And in AP, I would just be Page on second reference. At the New York Times, I'm Miss Page, Miss Page, you know, it's more formal. So my favorite probably is the Associated Press because it's informal. And I think for the majority of um, journalists, um, they're fluent in AP style. Yes, I grew up on AP style and, uh, and I always thought, and then when someone mentioned Chicago style, I said, what's that? Right, right. It is funny. And, uh, right, but wherever I've worked, there's always been a supplement to the um, AP style. For example, you know, when I worked in Connecticut with you, there is a supplement to the AP style book that talks about local history and local names that anyone who comes to that paper needs to read and um, get knowledge about. And wherever I've worked, even in PR and communications, we use the AP style book and then we have a local supplement. The military, for example, military communicators, 
they use the AP style. And then they also have a supplement to it for how we write um, military titles and you know what we call our bases, for example. Um, do you abbreviate Fort Hood, FT Hood, or do you spell out Fort, you know? In the um, VA where I work now, we always uppercase the V in veterans, so our local style. That's amazing. And um, can you just, for our listeners, Paula, you have an interesting and uh, complicated uh, career. Uh, so, so part of your career has been in civilian journalism and part of it has been in military journalism. Can you try to untangle that for us for a moment? Oh, sure, sure. Um, so I joined the Air Force straight out of high school. And at first, for the first five years, I was on active duty and I was a weather specialist, meteorology, and I um, served in Europe, in Germany and England. But I'd always felt a call to, to writing and editing and journalism, and I didn't quite um, know how to frame it at 16 and 17 when I felt a pull towards words. So I remember... Um, working in the air traffic control tower, there was a space there for weather people. And I would leave the weather, the, the weather station and then go to the base newspaper to help them proofread. Um, that's how much I wanted to be in that world. And when I got off active duty after five years, I joined the New York Air National Guard and um, became a public affairs um, specialist. And the military has a school called the Defense Information School, DINFOS. Um, it's now at uh, Fort Meade in Maryland, and that's where they train all their public affairs people or all their communicators. Uh, so they use, teach us about AP style and writing and editing and design and layout because as a public affairs professional in the military, um, you, they consider you a generalist. So you have to learn how to put a newspaper together, how to write and edit and put out a news release and do media relations. And you also have to do community relations, base tours and respond to queries from lawmakers. And uh, you also have to do crisis communication. So um, a lot of my foundation um, in writing and editing and journalism came from the military. And it was while I was working for the military that I met a few journalists um, working for Times Mirror, now Tribune, and they told me about a, a recruiting program for minorities. Um, and it was because the statistics show that uh, there weren't many minorities in journalism. And I joined journal journalism in the late 1980s. So I was recruited by Times Mirror to be part of a minority editorial training program called MetPro. And they also um, um, trained me in to do a lot of the same things that the military had trained me to do, writing and editing, um, researching and reporting. But it was much more intense because this was a year. We spent the first six months in the classroom and then the last six months in the actual newsroom. And at the end of this program, one of the Times Mirror slash Tribune papers um, picked their choice. And that's how I ended up in Connecticut and met you. So I was still a civilian journalist and still now working in the National Guard. Later, I transitioned to the Air Force Reserve, but I kind of had parallel careers. And so there were times in my career, based on what was going on in the world, in my case, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom, 9-11. There were many times I was called back to active duty or called to support the active duty. 
um, in my career. So I would, you know, that's just been my world. And, and many times both worlds blended. I would be um, on assignment inviting reporters to the base to cover a story. And I would see some of my friends from the paper. Uh, <laughs> I wish I could give the military all the credit for my journalism training, but I must give credit to um, Pam Robinson. She was the person who ran that um, copy editing training program at Newsday. And she, the advice and the counsel she gave us um, has stayed with me to this day. The one about questioning everything, um, being very thorough, and sometimes being diplomatic when you are having um, your interaction with reporters. Other pieces of advice is that, you know, don't practice armchair journalism. You know, get out of the newsroom, get into the street, meet people, interview people. Don't just sit in the newsroom and just make phone calls and write your story from the chair. Um, so whoever I am or whatever I've become professionally, all the credit goes to me just wanting to be the best, you know, at my craft. And so wherever I ended up, I would always look for the best person to mentor me. I'd get to that organization and I'd settle in and find out who is the best at their craft. And then I would ask them, you know, can you teach me? Can I learn from you? Give me my own one-on-one -on -one brown bag sessions. Uh, because it took me so long to finish school because I would start, stop, start, stop. So you know, I, I found alternative ways um, to, to get educated. Wow. And uh, and again, you are one of the uh, the finest journalists I've ever worked with. I wow. was considered a, a, an honor and uh, and it was fun, too. You were yeah, uh, yeah. you're I think that's part of, that's part of it, because I I always knew that you were I knew you were you were going to do a great job. So that made it that way I could relax. Uh, so, uh, Paula. When you open a story on your screen, how long does it take you to know if it's going to be an easy edit or a long and arduous process? I think if I find a typo or grammatical errors in the first three sentences, I know that this is going to be painful. <laughs> and sometimes when I know it's going to be a good story is when I'm gripped like by the first paragraph, by the first sentence or two you just know this is going to be a good story. And then I see my role in that is if it's perfect, don't touch it, <laughs> you know, or try my best to elevate it. Or I see the beginning of a good story and I say, this is a good story. How can I make it a great story? And, you know, I see that as my role. Sometimes a lot of stories are underreported. Like there's a big difference between um, researching or reporting and writing. And a lot of times I'll say, this is good writing, but there's no reporting. All the elements are missing. Numbers are missing. People are missing. There are no quotes in the story. There's no history. This has the potential to be a great story. And I'll, I've gone to an editor and say, can we hold the story another day or two so that the reporter could do some more research and make this a better story? Sometimes you don't, you don't have the leisure to do that. Um, especially in the digital era, because somebody will scoop you on the story. Somebody will get the story first. So you just have to push the story out. Yeah. But usually you can tell in the first couple of paragraphs. Ideally, what do you look for in a story when you're editing it? I mean, what's, what, what, do you, what, do you, what are you hoping to find when you open a story up on your screen? Um, a couple of things, um, depending on whether it's a hard news story, like, you know, six people were killed yesterday on Highway 5, or if it's a feature story that's giving me background on something 
um, that's being written about everywhere. And I just want more, you know, to find out more information. So some stories, there's a call to action in, in some stories. I'm reading something. And when I get to the end of it, it, it compels me to go do something, to go vote, to go donate money, because it tugs at my heartstrings and makes me want to go help. And another story, other stories are just enlightenment, you know, or, or history. Uh, I think that's what I'm looking for is that when I put the, the story down, I just feel elevated and there's some emotion and sometimes that emotion is joy like sometimes I'm reading something and I'm I just like ha! you know you didn't mean to you didn't mean to laugh but the, the the writing is so good um and some stories like really tell themselves somebody says you know the the man next door police came and they found 10 dead bodies in his backyard you know you're like how did 10 dead bodies get in that backyard? You want to know that story. You said, you said, tell me that story. Tell me that story. You know, and, and I'm a natural storyteller. Um, growing up in Jamaica, we didn't have a television. So my grandfather would tell me stories. So, you know, so I love a good story. And, you know, my siblings will tell you, oh, she loves telling stories. She drags the story out. You want to like get, get to the story you want. And I always said, do you want the short version or the long version of the story? <laughs> Paula, what's your take on the weird relationships between journalists and cops and journalists and politicians and journalists and other authority figures? I mean, why why are those relationships important and yet so often they're strained and combative? Well, I think they're cops and politicians, you know, there should be a healthy tension between journalists who are the so-called watchdogs and, and there should be tension. There should be conflict. Um, and I call it healthy because on the one hand, those are the people you're going to. That's the, that's, those are your sources and you're going to them for information. But you shouldn't get so cozy with them that if they're doing wrong, you're scared to write about it or you don't want to offend your friend. And they should also see journalists, the watchdog, that if there is some corruption going on in their organization, they know they can call you and you're going to tell the truth. Which we, At the end of the day, we're truth tellers. We're supposed to be truth tellers. You make a really good point about that. Uh, and it's a fine line because you want to have sources in the, you know, among the powerful people mm -hmm. who are your sources. Yeah. But um, you also are aware of the fact that that their whole that they're trying to manipulate you, mm -hmm. and that sometimes that manipulation is subtle, sometimes it's overt, uh, yeah. and 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 sometimes it can be on and off. You know, sometimes you don't know what's what's really going on. And but at and the end of the day, there has to be some sort of trust. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're trusting that source that they're going to give you good information, and they're trusting you sometimes that you are withholding who told you the information. And, you know, the other thing that the digital era has changed for journalists is the expectation is that a journalist has to be on social media now. And quite often you're mingling your professional and your personal life. So do you create two social media accounts, one Twitter account that's your personal account that is most journalists I know, they mingle their two social media mm -hmm. accounts. So they're if, if you want to know whether they're left-leaning or right-leaning, all you have to do is look at their social media accounts to find it out. And that often sometimes puts doubt um, in people's minds that they're writing a fair story. Let me ask you, which professional habits do you find especially helpful? And uh, more than helpful, which ones do you find essential for survival as a journalist? I think you have to keep up with trends. 
to survive as a journalist. And I'm not even going to call us journalists anymore to survive as a communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Because yeah. I have a friend, Lily, and she uses the term legacy journalist. She'll say... <laughs> Oh, that's insulting. Beautiful. No, I love it. I love it. She'll say, if you want to stay a legacy journalist, you're not going to survive. Uh, Legacy journalism. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's so amusing. Oh, man. Legacy journalists are dead. She always says, legacy legacy journalists. Yeah, she does. She says, legacy journalists are dead or dying. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I love it. Right. And if you want to evolve or keep up with the times, Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a communication theory called diffusion of innovation theory. And it has like, I think, five categories of people. You know, (laughs) you're an early adopter, you're a laggard. um, And I consider myself, it's like you're either the person who buys the Tesla when you first hear about it or you wait for the other people to try out the Tesla before you go buy it. (laughs) Um, And I consider myself an early adopter that I'll hear about some new technology, whether it's in communication or, or, you know, or it's in social media, you know, I will go create an account just to check it out. I'm surprised I don't have a TikTok account because I'm usually like jumping on the bandwagon and getting, you know, getting, um, getting into everything. But that's a professional habit of mine is to figure out what's next. What's the next big, what's the next big thing in my industry? What are, what, you know, what are people doing? Um, Cause I want to continually grow. And then um, and I think another good habit is to read. You don't necessarily have to be well read, but the one thing that I learned as a copy editor was you had to know a little bit about a lot of things. And I don't know if they're still doing this, but whenever I had to get a copy editing job, they gave you like a test, this broad range. You had to know a little bit about wrestling, a little bit about opera, a little bit about politics, a little bit about history, about world culture, because any night on the desk, you'll get tossed a story. I mean, one night it was a country singer had died. Another night a wrestler had died. One night Biggie Small died. And that's just obituaries. So on any given night, you you don't have time to go look up whether Christina Aguilera spells her name with a G or a Q. Um, and when, when I became copy chief, those are the things that I had to know up here because on the desk, things move pretty quickly and they move even faster now in the digital era than in the print era that I came from. So you don't have time to constantly be Googling. You don't have time to constantly grab the style book. If you want to keep up, keep up with the style book too. And so there are industry publications that I read, Columbia Journalism Review, Pointer.org. I try my best to keep up what's going on in my career field and what's going on in the world. I don't, sometimes I do go in what I call my news blackout when I just can't take it anymore because obviously in in our culture right now, we tend to, there's, you open it and all the headlines are the same. All that, and they're writing about the same thing. And so if you want, some other kind of news, for example, a good example is um, there was a civil war going on in Ethiopia, but not many people were writing about it. Um, there were things going on in Haiti. I'm talking about the Caribbean, talking about Africa. And if I wanted that news, I had to go look for it because it wasn't leading any mainstream publications. Paula, what advice do you have for writers and reporters? Well, one, I, you know, I told you about getting a mentor who knows a lot more about your craft than you do to share their knowledge with you. Just similar, even in life, you know, I do that. If I'm 
I watch a lot of HGTV and cooking mm-hmm. shows. So, you know, when I want to learn how to cook, I find uh, whether it's in my family or in my friendship circle, someone who's a much better cook than I am um, and someone who knows about interior decor and design than I do. And similarly, in writing and reporting, you find somebody who's much better than you and gain knowledge from them. And, and you do that, whether that's in person, um, and now you can do that virtually, and, um, and you can and read, read books, read um, what good writers are. Um, find, you know, find a good writer that you love and, um, and that can inspire you. You don't have to um, copycat, um, but use it for inspiration if you wanna be a better writer and editor and if you wanna grow. And then join some professional circles. So in the, I think it's in the DC area that this organization exists. The, I think it's called Military Reporters and Editors. Um, there's an organization there you can join. Of course, you know, uh, when I was a journalist, I was a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. And then we had a chapter in New Jersey. So I was a member of the Garden State Association of Black Journalists as well. I can't remember the name of it, but <laughs> the, the, the baseline advice is, Find some professional organizations to join of like-minded people, like find your tribe, so mm-hmm. to speak. And then, you know, so you'll be around a group of people. Can Being affiliated with your professional tribe will not only help sharpen your skills, but when it's time for a new job or you need advice, that's who you can call on. Um, those are the main, and, and, and constantly keep learning, not just from mentors, but go back to school. The communication career field is changing so quickly and what they're calling digital convergence um this blending of um print digital tv all these different mediums um all these different media converging on each other uh, you have to study that you know so be a be a student um and go back to school and kind of learn about um what is the thing? What is the skill set, this new skill set that you need to learn to survive and evolve? Okay, that was my conversation with Paula Page, legendary copy editor and all around wonderful person. I miss working with Paula. When she was copy chief, I never had to worry about opening the next day's edition of the newspaper and finding mistakes. She is a sharp and talented editor and a beacon of inspiration for all of us. Until next time, stay safe and be well. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.